Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming. I am uh, Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And I want to welcome you to our Hill briefing entitled, Why Six Presidents Oppose State-Sponsored Science and Why You Should Too. Um, if you are watching, uh, or if you're not here and want to watch, you can watch the live stream at cato.org slash events. And you can join the conversation at hashtag Cato events. Um, so in part, this, this program was developed with the cooperation of Cato's Center for the Study of Science. So um, there's that. And this is a fitful week for this because, as you know, uh, both chambers of Congress are debating the amount of money to spend combating the Zika virus. So it's a very timely event that we present the idea about what, of what government's role sh in science should really be. So to present this uh, story today, we have with us Dr. Terrence Keeley. He is an adjunct scholar and visiting fellow at the Cato Institute. He is a professor of clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom, where he served as vice chancellor until 2014. As a clinical biochemist, Dr. Keeley studied human experimental dermatology. He published around 45 original peer-reviewed papers and around 35 scientific reviews, also peer-reviewed. His work attracted funding from government, charities, and business. But while doing this research, Professor Keeley learned how distorting government money could be to the scientific enterprise. In 1996, he published his first book, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, where he argued that contrary to the conventional wisdom, governments need not fund science. His second book, Sex, Science, and Profits, in 2008, argues that science is not a public good, but rather is organized in invisible colleges, thereby making government funding irrelevant. Both works are recognized as vital contributions to the study of science and public policy. Professor Keeley trained initially in medicine at Barts Hospital Medical School in London, and he studied for his doctorate at Oxford University, where he worked first as a medical research council training fellow and then as a welcome senior research fellow in clinical science. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Terence Keeley. Peter, thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. It's lovely that on such a warm day you've come and joined me on this occasion. Can I also thank Pat Michaels and Joe Veruni of Cato Center for the Study of Science for inviting me across to the States for this year. The talk is why six American presidents um, oppose the government funding of science. And in fact, there are more than that, but there are six prominent ones. And I'm going to use the story of the six presidents to punctuate the talk because there has, in fact, been a discussion throughout the history of the Republic on how much the federal government should or should not spend on science. And curiously, the Republic has made a decision without telling anyone. And what we're seeing at the moment is the gradual privatization of science, but done in a very quiet and discreet and gradual way that people are not noticing. When the Declaration of Independence was uh, declared in 1776, and then when the Constitution was created, it was in a world where uh, the majority of the Founding Fathers had read Adam Smith, and Adam Smith had explained very clearly that there was no need for governments to fund science. And he went to the early Industrial Revolution in England, and of course particularly in Scotland, and he showed example after example after example of how industry produced as much science as it needed. He also took on Francis Bacon, the Englishman who in 1605 had argued that science was a public good and that governments should in fact fund it. And although he never mentioned the word Francis Bacon because Adam Smith was a very courteous man, very diplomatic man, he didn't want to confront people 
And the Royal Society in England has, was absolutely the product of Francis Bacon's thought, and he didn't want the Royal Society descending upon him like a ton of bricks. He actually pointed out that Francis Bacon's argument was purely a theoretical argument, not based on practice. In practice, he pointed out, the universities of the day had nothing to contribute to the advance of industrial science, and indeed pure science, academic science, was actually feeding off industrial science. It was the industrial scientists who improved the steam engine, for example, by which that meant that the laws of thermodynamics had to be recreated. It was the industrial scientists who showed that simple ideas, or that, for example, heat might be an entity, the caloric theory of heat, was a nonsense. And he went through time and time again showing that governments didn't need to fund science. And that was the story here in America as well, as well as in England. In England, there was no government funding for science at all until the First World War. <clears throat> the first government funding for science in America happens by accident, when an Englishman called James Smithson leaves the money for the Smithsonian Institution. And that was a strangely controversial donation opposed by all those in the American government, all branches of the American government, who believed that it was not a legitimate government function. Oh, thank you, Peter. Even if it had been funded by someone else. So when the money was donated um, in the 1840s, there was a debate in Congress as to whether it should be accepted or not. And some of the statements made by some of the uh, elected representatives were astonishing. So for example, look at the Senate. You had Senator John Calhoun, of course famous from South Carolina, simply said the money should be returned to its heirs. While Senator William Preston, also from South Carolina, said that every whippersnapper vagabond might think it proper to have his name distinguished in the same way if we accept this donation. And joining them was the first of my six presidents, Andrew Johnson, then a representative in, from Tennessee, who believed very strongly that governments should not put out a penny in any project unless it could be shown to be the benefit of society, and who, who denounced the support, because the American government had to then give some support to the Smithsonian, because the money of the Smithsonian was invested in a couple of banks in Arkansas. The banks, I'm afraid, lost the money. There was corruption. There was misappropriation of that money. And so Congress decided to make up the money. And Andrew Johnson uh, denounced it as the picking of the pockets of the people. And for the rest of his life, he was the Smithsonian's biggest enemy. And if you buy any of the standard histories of the Smithsonian, Andrew Johnson recurs repeatedly as a man who was unremitting in his savage criticism of the Smithsonian. But he couldn't actually stop the uh, Congress supporting the Smithsonian. And when, of course, he finally himself became president, he had more urgent things to worry about. But he never gave up his loathing of the Smithsonian. The first president actually to stop a government program was James Buchanan. Everyone here knows of the you know, great American history of the land grants colleges. What is often forgotten is that the first bill for the land grants colleges actually was presented and passed through Congress and presented to Buchanan, obviously by definition, uh, before the Civil War, and he vetoed it. And the, the grounds of his veto are interesting. Let me read some of the veto for you. First of all, he said, and I won't give you that particular part of the veto because it's he used a lot of words, but his point was that the problem with American agriculture, then as indeed now, was the problem of overproduction. 
American farmers and American landowners were poor. And they were poor because so many people had been given grants of land. There were so many people trying to make money out of the land as farmers, as landowners, that there was overproduction. And so the farmers and the landowners were poor. And so the purpose of the land-grant colleges was in some way to help these very poor people. And moral, uh, and sorry, and Buchanan opposed this, A, because it was irrational. Why should we try to make farming more efficient when the problem is that of overproduction? But also because it would simply only crowd out the pre-existing uh, provision. And this is what he said as part of his bill. This bill will injuriously interfere with the existing colleges, which have grown up under the fostering care of the states and the munificence of individuals. What the effect will be on these institutions of creating an indefinite number of rival colleges sustained by the endowment of the federal government is not difficult to determine. And indeed, he got it absolutely right. The successors of the land-grant colleges now dominate uh, the, the, the higher education uh, field that they're in, the states that they're in, and the former colleges, either created by private philanthropy or by state governments, have in many cases been overshadowed by that crowding out. The act only came in in 1862, signed in by Abraham Lincoln, who of course was not a believer in free markets. Abraham Lincoln believed in tariffs. He believed in uh, some form of corporate capitalism, as of course we all know, the American way. Um, but his condition was that they had to teach military drill. So when Abraham Lincoln actually signed in to law uh, the land-grant colleges, they were as much a series of mini West Points distributed around the northern states as they were agricultural colleges because he too recognized that they were essentially irrelevant and possibly even injurious, to use Buchanan's word, uh, to, the, to, to the education of farmers in agriculture. So we now come to the third of our presidents who oppose the government funding of science. And what's interesting is that one of the reasons there is so little debate in the early years is that once the land-grant colleges are created, and they would not have been created but for the Civil War, support actually for them stops. And there is practically no government support for science at all for the first hundred or so years of the history of the Republic. Um, in the First World War, there's a brief uh, flowering of government funding of science for military reasons. In the Civil War earlier, there's a brief government flowering of science for military reasons. The, the National Academy of Sciences, for example, was created in the middle of the Civil War. Quite openly as a military initiative, the government supported the creation of the National Academy of Sciences because they wanted support for defeating the South. It was as blunt as that. And once the war is over, the government wishes the National Academy of Sciences no ill will, but doesn't do anything for them. They have to survive, for the, and they do survive, uh, purely as a club for distinguished researchers. Nothing wrong with that, but uh, nothing to do with the government funding of science for economic reasons. And the First World War dies away, and the next real crisis that hits America as far as science is concerned is the Depression. And the Depression sees Franklin Delano Roosevelt elected president and he was a savage enemy of the government funding of science. For him, it was very clear that one of the causes of the Depression was that science, which as far as he was concerned, was the province of the rich and of corporate owners, stockholders, 
science was constantly making ordinary working people redundant. Now, the government had a philosophy, and had a philosophy right from the day beginnings when George Washington was first elected president, that the government did not fund science for economic reasons, period. The Smithsonian was the only exception, and that was because it was a donation. And again, it wasn't done for economic reasons. It was done solely because the money had come, and it was a cultural exercise. Apart from that, the government's support for science was only was limited to, to missions. So if there was the Coast um, Commission, for example, if the government took and took, made a decision it was going to get involved in weights and balances, it, or it was going to create the, the Congress, the Library of Congress, it then, if those institutions for their missions required support for any particular research they had to do, then that was fine. The, but, but apart from that, the government did not support science. It certainly didn't support universities. The biggest element of government support in those days, this is before the Second World War, was agriculture and defence. <clears throat> they were really the only two things the government spent any, federal government spent any significant sums of money for, and the two missions were very clear. The federal government had taken on board the problems of farmers and landowners who were poor, and so in some way wanted to support them, the way they still do, of course, though they're not so poor anymore, and defence, of course, is a legitimate federal government. Uh, responsibility. Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes to power. He reverses Hoover's pro-science policies, which he sees as simply a form of corporate welfare, and he halves, Franklin Delano Roosevelt halves federal support for science over a five-year period. And some of, the, some of the impact was really very dramatic indeed. So, for example, um, the uh, Department of Agriculture uh, between uh, uh, 1932 and 1934, its research budgets fell from 21 million to 16 million and continued to fall. In 1934 alone, lost 567 research posts. The Bureau of Standards, which was another science-driven outfit, saw its research budget more than halved. It went down to only 40%. A whole tranche of scientists made redundant at the height of the Depression. This was vicious stuff, and only reversed as the New Deal came in when Wallace, Henry Wallace, the vice president, started funding science projects at public universities across uh, the states as a form of outdoor relief for scientists. What's interesting is the huge growth of private research at that time. Between 1931 and 1938, and the figures are remarkable, the number of industrial labs in the states rose from 1,600 to 2,200. The number of industrially funded researchers rose from 30,000 to 40,000. And the amount of industrial money spent on science went from 120 billion a year to 175 billion a year. So a very nice case of crowding out. When the government, federal government pulled back the private sector more than compensated by the increased amount of money it spent on its own research. By 1940, you have a very interesting situation in America. You have been the richest country in the world in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of industrialization, for 50 years. From 1890 until 1940, and of course subsequently, you are the most industrialized, the most technologically advanced nation in the world. And yet the government has spent effectively no money on science apart from in agriculture, the purpose of which is to subsidize a sector of society that's failing and doesn't do a very good job, of course, and defense, which is a different thing altogether and has practically no economic value anyway. 
You became the richest country in the world under laissez-faire, research laissez-faire. The country you overtook was Great Britain, which for the previous century had been the richest country in the world, led the world through the agricultural and industrial revolutions. Totally research laissez-faire. The British government, if such a thing is conceivable, gave less money to research than the American government had given, and the American government wasn't funding research. So the two great economies over that two-century period were completely laissez-faire in science. The competitors were France and Germany. Their governments poured money into government-funded universities and laboratories. And if you look at uh, France and Germany in 1800, for example, their GDP per capita were about two-thirds, three-quarters of Britain's. And a century later, in 1900, their GDP per capita was about two-thirds, three-quarters of Britain's. They didn't even catch up with Britain, let alone overtake. The United States of America in 1800 your GDP per capita was French or German levels. You weren't that rich a country in 1800. By 1900, you'd not only caught up with us, you'd overtaken. So the two leads were the two laissez-faire countries in research. The countries that failed to catch up were the countries where the governments were very generous to research. So we now come to the Second World War. By 1940, you are, as I said, laissez-faire in research. It doesn't stop you employing people like Einstein at Princeton, doesn't stop you producing Tesla or Edison or the Wright brothers. You are the lead country when it comes to technology. 1940, of course, the war breaks out, or 1941 in your case, but in 1940, uh, Roosevelt starts the business of funding defense science. And by 1945, the federal government's employing 6,000 scientists. The Manhattan Project, antibiotics, a whole tranche of research projects uh, designed to help you win the war, and a very good job they were doing too. The question is, what to do with these people after the war? These people did not want to lose their jobs. They liked working for the federal government. It was a very agreeable way of earning a living. You basically did what you wanted, you organized the projects the way you wanted, and your check came around every month, and there was no one to judge you otherwise. And so they decided that they wanted to create something called the National Science Foundation. And an argument was put forward by a man called Vannevar Bush, a very distinguished man who, who led these 6,000 scientists. He wrote a book called Science, the Endless Frontier. Uh, Pat Michaels here calls it Science, the Endless Grant. And, um, and the argument was that just as we showed that we could win the war by government funding us, it would be the same for peace. If only the government gave us money, we would be able to transform the American economy. And rates of economic growth which had been held back so terribly prior to 1940 will now take off because the American government will support science. So the National Science Foundation bill goes through Congress and comes to our next science skeptical president, Truman. <coughs> Truman didn't like the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation wanted to give money on grounds of merit. It believed in peer review. That, that's what the um, National Science Foundation believed, merit and peer review. What Truman believed is that this was government funding of science. The money should be distributed according to whatever politicians or civil servants believed was right, and it should be distributed fairly across the states according to per capita. Bush, um, uh, Truman hated peer review so much that this is what he said in his veto. He vetoed it in 1947. This bill contains provisions which represent such a marked departure from sound principles for the administration of public affairs that I cannot give it my approval. 
It would, in effect, vest the determination of vital national policies, expenditure of large public funds, and the administration of important government functions in a group of individuals who would essentially be private citizens. The proposed National Science Foundation would be divorced from control by the people to an extent that implies a distinct lack of faith in democratic processes. All of which, of course, is true. The NSF is not run on democracy. It's an elitist organization, as of course it should be. The only reason the NSF was created in 1950 was for the same reasons that the National Security Council was created in 1950. The Cold War showed signs of hotting up. And Truman was, was persuaded that actually the government's going to have to start creating defense establishments again. And they're going to need scientists. So we better start training them up. So it's exactly like the National Academy during the Civil War. Um, it's only because of the threat of military functions, military actions, that the federal government finally, for the first time in 1950, funds a peacetime scientific project, the National Science Foundation, the explicit argument being that this will stimulate technological and economic growth. So here we are now, and we're in a position to audit this claim. Did the National Science Foundation, did the fact that America is now the world's leading scientific nation cause a stimulation of economic growth and rates of technological development in America? England did exactly the same thing in 1914, 1918. Did the English economy suddenly take off when in 1914, 1918, the British economy, I should say, started to be funded by the government? You can guess what the answer is going to be, but let me get there. So um, the money starts to pour in. The problem that the NSF and the NIH, also created at the same time, have is that universities, which is where they wanted to put their money, were then largely liberal arts colleges. Universities weren't geared up for research. I mean, Princeton had the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies, and there were, of course, uh, researchers in, in American universities. But in the main, you were teaching. So the NSF and the NIH had to go around explaining to universities what a research grant was and how you got one. And they had to work at turning the institutions that were formerly teaching institutions into research institutions. And Eisenhower did not approve. He's the next of our science skeptical presidents. He, of course, had been president of Columbia for six years, so he knew what he was talking about. This is what he said in his famous military-industrial complex speech the day or the week he resigned. So he talks about the military-industrial complex. He then talks about the other problem, which is the scientific technological elite. And he says, a steadily increasing share of research is conducted for, or at least the direction of, the federal government. So the free university, historically the founding head of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, we should, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become captive of a scientific technological elite. And it's one of the themes of the Cato Center for the Study of Science that that is exactly what has happened across, across the piece. So Eisenhower very much regretted the damage to the universities, the fact that universities had gone from speaking truth unto power to saying to federal agencies, tell us what you want and we'll do it. Not what he thought universities should be doing. And the last one of our science skeptics is Lyndon Johnson. 
Lyndon Johnson had noticed that the claim that scientific and technological and economic benefits would come from the government funding of science had not been met. Rates of economic growth in the states have been 2% a year per capita since before 1830. After 1940, after 1950, those long-term rates did not show a deflection. This huge American government support for science had not stimulated economic or technological growth, or indeed medical growth. And this is what Lyndon Johnson said on the 15th of June 1966 uh, when he launched Medicare. And he turned on the NIH and he said to the NIH, a great deal of basic research has been done. I've been participating for years in the appropriations in this field. But I think the time has now come to zero in on the targets by trying to get this knowledge fully applied. There are hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on laboratory research that may be useful to human beings here if large-scale trials and promising areas are initiated. Now, presidents, in my judgment, need to show more interest in what the specific results of medical research are during their lifetime and during their administration. I'm going to show an interest in the results. Whether we get any or not, I'm going to show an interest in them. And what he's saying there is, I see no benefit from NIH money, and unless the NIH can persuade me there is a benefit, I will start to oppose any more funding. But of course, as we all know, the Vietnam War broke out in, a, in, a, in an intensive way, and he there, thereafter got distracted. However, the Vietnam War did stimulate a very interesting project, because under pressure from Lyndon Johnson and also General uh, JFK, as it happens, they wanted to ask these two successive presidents if the federal government for military research had had any benefit on military development. And they commissioned something called Project Hindsight, which asked, what has the Department of Defense actually benefited from federal government of science? And it revealed that of 710 research events that the Department of Defense had identified, which had yielded the development of 20 key weapon systems. So the Department of Defense said, these are our 20 key weapon systems today, and these are the 710 research events that led to the development of these 20 key weapon systems. Only two of the 710 could be identified as having come from basic science. This was a further piece of evidence for Lyndon Johnson that the government funding, the federal government funding of science had yielded no benefits. What is interesting is that today, government-employed economists have confirmed that. There is in this city uh, an economist employed by the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. This isn't some mad Cato libertarian. This is someone employed by the federal government. And he says, he's an economist, and in 2007, he reviewed the literature on R&D, and he concluded, the overall rate of return to R&D is very large. However, these returns apply only to privately funded R&D in industry. That's your federal government and your employee reviewing the facts. There has been no stimulation. It's not just the American government. There's the OECD, which is the think tank, the economic think tank, of all the major industrialized countries. Government funded. Lots of governments in this case. 2003, they published a very interesting report called The Sources of Economic Growth in OECD Countries. And they looked at all the OECD countries over a 21-year period. 
So there's a lot of data. And they concluded, uh, no, not 21 years, 27 years. All OECD countries over 27 years. It is business-performed R&D that drives a positive association between total R&D intensity and output growth. The results for public R&D are not just negative, not just neutral, they're actually negative. The OECD found that it appeared that the government funding of R&D actually seemed to slow down economic growth. And they suggest it's because the publicly funded R&D crowds out privately funded R&D. And the others have made the same observations. I'm one of them, Walter Park here in DC, actually, the American University, have made the same observations, that there is no correlation between the public funding of research and development and economic or technological growth, only of the private funding. And the damage is that the public funding crowds out the private funding. I.e., if you don't have any public funding, you have 100 scientists working for industry. If the public sector comes along and starts employing those scientists, then the best ones leave the private sector, go to the public sector, and do nothing of economic value, it may have non-economic value, but nothing of economic value, reducing, leaving a reduced, both in terms of quantity and quality pool, for the private sector, which is why the public funding of R&D actually slows economic growth. It takes people out of the economic growth sector into the non-economic growth sector. Now, I'm not going to talk for the full amount of time available to me, because I don't want to, because it's, it's discussion that is always the most stimulating part of this. So I just want to finish off with a brief history of how it is that we all believed that the public funding of science should be of economic benefit. And I blame, if I'm allowed to blame, the RAND Corporation, which is, of course, very famous. RAND starts, stands for R&D. That's what RAND is. And the RAND Corporation was created in part by Vannevar Bush, in part by the Air Force, and in part by the Douglas Aircraft Company in 1945, to help Vannevar Bush with his campaign to persuade the gov federal government to put money into research so that these poor, unfortunate 6,000 scientists wouldn't be forced to earn their living but would be able to carry on receiving government support indefinitely. Here is the report written by Rand's own historian. I didn't write this. Rand's own historian wrote this. Rand's problem was that they also received money from the federal government, and they needed to absolutely ensure that the federal government carried on doing it. So this is what Rand's own historian wrote. Rand's Economics of R&D project also yielded two of the foundation papers in the field, Richard Nelson's and Ken Arrow's. Nelson's and Arrow's papers provided appealing economic theories as to why the nation would systematically underinvest in basic research. The theories had clear policy implications. The U.S. government should invest more in basic research and into market failures in the private sector. These theories have been largely internalized with the now dominant neoclassical tradition. Rand had a mission. It wanted government funding for science. So what he's saying is it found some tame economists to produce the theories they looked for. And they did. These economists came up with theories, and I'm, these are technical terms, um, non-excludability, non-rivalry, which showed that governments would have to fund science. The trouble is that it's not true. The idea that the government, that any science is publicly available, that it's a public good, and therefore anyone can copy it, and therefore there's under-reward to the scientist, is just one of those myths. Look, let's not talk about today's science, because today's science is very complicated. Let's think of science as more than 100 years old, i.e. when science was still practically in its infancy. 
Let's look at some papers published over 100 years ago and see how public they really are. Let's look at Einstein's theories of relativity. They're over 100 years now, old now. They're kindergarten stuff. I mean, everybody in this room could pick up Einstein's papers and just understand them, couldn't we? Of course not. Science is difficult. And if science is 100 years old, it's incredibly impenetrable. Just think how much less penetrable contemporary science is. It's simply a myth. When Ken Arrow and Richard Nelson said that science was non-rivalrous and non-excludable, that anybody in this room could just go to the shelves of the library and open the journals, read the stuff and copy it, they were peddling a fiction, because it's not true. Only fellow scientists can understand the science of other scientists, and the price you pay for being a fellow scientist is the papers you yourself publish. It's very expensive to access other people's science. You've got to do science to do it. And we've published papers, Martin Ricketts, a colleague of mine, uh, and I, showing that science, in fact, could be called a contribution good, that the benefits of science flow only to fellow contributors. It was never a public good. Adam Smith showed in 1776 that it wasn't a public good. The Rand Corporation had its own very strong reasons for claiming it was a public good. But you've only got to think two minutes about the history and sociology of science. Because if it were public good, why do we create universities? Why do we have PhD programs? Why do we have postdocs? Why do we have the National Academy of Sciences? To create the institutions by which this contribution good fosters contribution. So, at least six US presidents have been deeply skeptical, more as well, but these are six of the more prominent of the skeptics. And what's interesting today, and now my talk is over, is how we are, well, I say we, how you in the States are now reverting back to the original model for science. In Ronald Reagan's last year as president, half of all research and development in, the, in America was funded by the federal government. Now it's only 27%. Every year it falls by about 2%. What's happening in this country is the American government is very quietly just stabilizing its funding for science and the private sector is absolutely taking over. The federal government now gives, of its 27%, it gives $5 billion a year to the NSF. That is basically buying off elite opinion in the universities. It gives about $10 billion a year to NASA, to energy for global warming, to agriculture and other missions. So like in the early days of the republic, various missions are identified as legitimate government functions, and so those missions are supported. But very quietly, the American government has transparently given up on the idea that the federal support for science is important for economic growth because it's not doing that anymore. It's funding basic science to keep the universities happy, and it's funding various mission projects. But it's not supporting science to stimulate economic growth, nor need it. Economic growth has never been healthier. Thank you very much.